0: Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. My guest today is Amy Chozik. Amy is a writer at large for the New York Times, where for the last seven years, she has covered politics, business, and the media. She has dedicated a huge amount of time over the last decade to reporting about a woman named Hillary Clinton, who you may have heard of. Amy covered Clinton in 2008 while at the Wall Street Journal and in 2016 while with the Times. And the culmination of all that work is her new book, Chasing Hillary. Amy relies on her wit, insight, and experience in the pages of this book, which is part campaign book, part memoir, part press criticism. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And despite the deluge of books written about 2016, Amy's book has been lauded by many as a real page-turner, and it really is. So I welcome to the Sunday Long Week podcast, Amy chozik Amy, how you doing?
1: Hi, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for making time for us. So I want to start with the great news that you got last week that Chasing Hillary landed, debuted at number nine on the New York Times best selling list, bestseller list. How did you feel when that happened?
1: Oh my God, I screamed. I was so you happy. You did?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Where were you when you found out?
1: I was in DC. I was doing, Politics and prose, and a couple other events in DC. And like as you know, having a book come out is such a roller coaster of emotions and anxieties, and it's hard to like even enjoy. People send you pictures of it at the bookstore, and it's hard to even like enjoy it because you're just thinking about the next, <laughs> the next storm, and the next, and the, the pushback. So, um, so it was great. It was a really great moment.
0: Did you have any expectation that that your book had a chance of making the list?
1: I actually thought, it's funny, I mean, I had planned to write a book uh, way before the election, and so after Hillary lost, I was like, people are tired of her, no one wants to read my book, and then I, you know, decided that it's actually maybe a better book, um, in that it has an ending. Um, I wasn't sure how it would have ended if she had won, you know, what kind of president is she going to be, is she going to win a second term, all of those things. But at the same time, I also knew that, like, it's Trump all the time, and this is going to look... You know, but people are going to think Hillary and not want to read this as much. So I was very happy to see that it was so well received. But I definitely had my hesitations. And if you look at the bestseller list, it's like all Trump, you know.
0: It is. No, I mean, you broke <laughs> through. It's remarkable, actually. Well, I want to talk a lot about your book on this podcast. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about your background. I was fascinated to learn that you're a fifth generation Texan, which is kind of cool.
1: Texan Jew. Texas Jew, right?
0: yeah. I mean, you got to add the Jew part. <laughs> That's right. You're right. And what was that? And what was that like growing up in Texas?
1: Um, you know, it was. I'm from San Antonio, um, South Texas. It was. It's very. It was very conservative and very Christian. I mean, I have a anecdote in the book that one of my friends gave me a cross for my bat mitzvah, you know, right. not to be, not to be <laughs> imply anything. They just didn't know. You know, I think it's changed. Uh, since I've been gone. But you know, certainly our favorite restaurants were like closed on Sunday for family and worship. And you feel like a little bit you, you do feel like uh, an outsider. Um, I did at least uh, growing up in San Antonio, big public school. Actually, we I had to go to Hebrew school to prepare for my bat mitzvah, and there were so few Jewish kids at each of the public school that, like, a white van with a Star of David would come around and pick us up for Hebrew school. And my friends at school, I think, correctly called it the Jewmobile. It was, oh it was gosh. like, could you make me feel could like mom and dad? Could you make me feel more awkward? You know, right, <laughs> so right. um, so yeah, it was like it's funny getting to New York and you know feeling like everyone, you know, you're surrounded by Jewish people and all, all religions, but there it was. It was different. I don't you know, do you know John Schwartz at The New York Times?
0: I do know John. Yeah, so terrific John journalist.
1: I, yeah. So I just started The Times and somebody said, you should meet John. He's from Texas, too. And We go out to get tacos near the Times building like a hole in the wall on 10th Avenue. You've probably been there. And um, and he says, so how would your family get to Texas? And I said, well, my uh, my mom's family, my great great grandpa was pedaling on the railroad and then the railroad stopped in this little town called Luling. And he opened a dry goods store. And John Schwartz says, wait, my great-great-grandfather had a dry goods store in Luling. And we realized we're cousins. <laughs> we're, oh my gosh. <laughs> legitimate like We're not we're legitimately cousins. And now, of course, at the New York Times, they think every Jew from Texas is related, which isn't entirely <laughs> wrong, I guess.
0: That's awesome. So what a great story. So my mom was like,
1: oh, yeah, Johnny. And I said, mom, all those years I was trying to break into journalism in New York, you forgot about your cousin at the New York Times.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big help. Your bio on the Times website says you moved to New York in 2001 with no job, no apartment, and a stack of clips from the Daily Texan. Uh, was your initial success driven by confidence, do you think, or fear?
1: I think fear because I had to support myself. I mean, I moved my, like, you know, save the money I'd saved working in a snow cone stand in Austin ran out wow. pretty quickly wow. um, and so I was temping sort of all over town um, trying to pay my rent and you know survive in New York I think those like early I look very fondly on the early broke years in New York but at the time and also I think a lot of naivete you know like I was really naive and I had no connections in New York or in media and I was literally dropping my clips off running around New York dropping my clips off downstairs with security and mailrooms. rooms. Um, and uh, some one time a Bernie, one of the Bernie Bros, was reading my bio and decided to say something nasty and said her bio sounds like a mix between working girl and midnight cowboy. And I was like, actually, that's that kind of sums it up.
0: That's pretty um, good. Yeah, yeah, I
1: thought I thought that that sums it up. Hopefully, I won't die on a greyhound though, like uh, in a uh, midnight cowboy. Right. But <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So I think it was a mix of naivete and uh, and just like fear and you know i got so worried that i was never going to get a job in journalism that i start i thought about taking the lsat and then like law school was i thought about starting a dog walking business i mean it was all very motivated by just like what is going to allow me to keep living in new york
0: <laughs> right and we have a lot of young journalists and would be, young would be journalists that listen to this podcast so what advice okay. would you give them when they're when they're in your shoes you know contemplating law school and getting really frustrated and scrambling without that many clips except from a college newspaper. I mean, how did you pull it off and how did you land that first job?
1: Yeah, I mean, I got great advice by the time I got to the Wall Street Journal of an editor who said, if you want to if you want to be a writer, just write. I mean, I hear from young journalists, too, who can't find a job and think well I'll just get a job in PR because that's sort of the same thing and it's like no it's not (laughs) if you need to wait tables or you need to do whatever it is and write on the side I just think that those and now the barriers to getting published are so much lower I mean you could post something great on medium and have a cool clip you know Um, at the time I was trying to do like restaurant reviews for time out I mean I had to physically get it in a publication, which was, which was harder, Um, but I think just keep writing and keep getting clips and, and I think that scrappy determination is, and that chip on your shoulder is actually very motivating, maybe even more so than, you know, uh, friends I have who were kind of destined to work at the New York Times from the, from the Crimson at Harvard or whatever it was
0: and when you were coming up when you got your job at the journal was the times really the destination job that you dreamed about when you were young or even when you were working at the journal
1: not really what's interesting about the journal and the old pre-murdoch days is that people rarely left you really could see your whole career there because it was a place where if you remember they used to say we're a newspaper with no news you know you would do there these these great deep investigations um feature the quirky features and it was like it was a really special I think in retrospect it's understandable that it evolved but um, but it was a really special quirky place where you felt like you could spend your whole career there so I certainly wasn't you know always gunning to get to the New York Times I was incredibly in, I was in disbelief when I made it there and I'm incredibly grateful to be there but it wasn't I think you know that the changes at the journal I think motivated me more than like some you know childhood dream
0: right interesting so when you were uh at the journal you went to tokyo and you were a foreign correspondent there what was that experience like and how much did kind of you know you mentioned earlier that you were felt like an outsider uh in texas at Mm -hmm. times and obviously you felt like an outsider i'm sure in tokyo and how how much of that experience helped you in covering hillary down the road
1: um, yeah, I mean, again, I guess it was a mix of naivete and kind of curiosity, but I um, I speak fluent Spanish. Uh, I used to spend summers in Mexico with family and um, and I was set to go to Mexico City for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and then I'd been to Japan like once to visit a Japanese friend and thought it was fascinating. Um, and an opening in Tokyo came up and I thought, oh, well, that sounds interesting. And I've been to Mexico and I know all about, you know, that place. Why don't I go to this totally, you know, new place. But it was, um, it was incredibly hard. You know, I, I didn't speak much Japanese. I didn't, I hardly spoke any Japanese, I should clarify. I, I learned a lot while I was there, but enough to take a taxi and order a restaurant, certainly not enough to, you know, function at work. Um, and it was incredibly lonely. I mean, there are some Western men there, but there are very few Western women. Um, And it's not like if you've been to Hong Kong, other places in Asia, there are that are pretty westernized. I mean, Tokyo is really its own. Japan is really its own thing. And I think sometimes you get off the plane in like Cairo, or you get off the plane in Africa, and you know that uh, you're in a really different foreign place kind of right away. And I think Japan is very off-putting because it's modern, and it's clean, and it's efficient, but it is not western. I mean, it is kind of the most uh you know landing on the moon type of place (laughs) and i was really lonely i mean i think i think lost in translation kind of captures it better than sofia coppola lived in japan and i think she really captured that isolation that you feel um there but that said there would be days when i'd wake up and think the japanese have it all figured out you know (laughs) like the um i knew that the weather was changing because the the uh, vending machines would go from selling hot to cold tea uh when the seasons changed i mean you could it was a city i don't know if you've been there but a city of 30 million people there is not a stray gum wrapper there's not one piece of trash anywhere um i would not i didn't lock up my bike you didn't need to lock up your bike so there was just this i could walk through a park in the middle of the night and not be worried for my safety i mean there's there's amazing things about japan but at the same time it's also a very racist country. I mean, they're kind of notoriously don't like uh, other other Asians and they they don't like Westerners all that much. So there were places even when I was with Japanese friends who would kind of take me to these great, you know, underground clubs and restaurants and bars. And there was this thing that the Japanese do. They cross their fingers and an X and it basically means they're not allowed in, in our establishment. So I got a lot of that. Um, But, you know, I would not trade that experience. That experience was amazing.
0: So when you were in Tokyo, you had an opportunity then to go to Iowa and cover Hillary Clinton. How did that happen?
1: Um, Right. So my boss uh, in Asia, who had overseen foreign coverage, became the Washington Bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. And he said, how'd you like to go to Iowa and cover Hillary Clinton? So U.S. politics was, was pretty foreign to me. By that point, I had been very immersed in learning all things about Japan. So I arrived and... Iowa to this like circus of covering a presidential campaign and I you know had passing knowledge of Obama I thought Hillary Clinton. I guess I'm riding this to the White House (laughs) so so much for that Um, And so it was interesting. I mean in one hand this editor who I write about in the book John Bussey he's really brilliant and his he sent me to Japan partly because he thinks reporters need fresh perspective like you know, if you've lived in Japan for 20 years, you don't think that the toilet that plays music is a story. That's just a toilet in Japan, you know. But American readers are going to think that those things are stories. So he always wanted, he tried to get reporters, of course there are reporters with deep expertise and sources and who speak the language of politics or the language of Japan, but he also thought there was value in having reporters with fresh perspective. And um, and that was the same when I got to Iowa. I sort of thought everything was a story. Um, Everybody was hooking up, like reporters hooked up with Secret Service guys and staffers were hooking up. And I did a, remember the Wall Street Journal is that A-head in the middle of the front page, but I did a story on campaign hookups. And everyone was like, well, everyone knows people hook up on a campaign. That's not a story, but like readers thought it was a story. So I've always tried to be sort of careful of that, of getting too cynical where you say, oh, everybody knows X or Y, because you know if we're writing for readers. They probably don't.
0: That's exactly right. And fresh eyes are really, really important for a journalist. And as you said, you know, you get easily become cynical when you're somewhere for a long time and you just roll your eyes and you don't think anything's a story because you've seen it all. So um, I I love John Bussey's philosophy and I think it definitely works. I know it's in your book, but I want you to tell our listeners, what was your first impression of Hillary Clinton in Iowa in 2008?
1: Oh, God. So I knew nothing about covering pop. I didn't know the decorum. I didn't know, you know, um, and I, we went to her first rally and I had been abroad for so long and I was like very swept up in the Americana. You know, it was like in a firehouse in a small town in Iowa and there were American flags. And at the time her song was Tom Petty's American Girl. And we were, the press was sitting in the back. And when Hillary came up, you know, got on stage and everybody stood up and cheered, I stood up and cheered. It was, it was so, I mean, I, and I looked around and all the other reporters are like stone-faced staring at their laptops and a guy from the Chicago Tribune, Jason George, who subsequently became a good friend, like tugs at my parka and is like, dude, dude, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> and I quickly sat back down and I have to say it was less like, oh my God, it's Hillary and more like I was really swept up in this like, you know, um, experience of being back in America and Uh, so yeah, that was, I learned not to do that.
0: (laughs) So, so you stood up more for patriotism than you did for Hillary, right? I mean, just feeling great about being home again. Yeah, I think
1: I was just, yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Okay. And how long did it take after that moment of you standing up and cheering, uh, for you to become like the other cynical journalists looking stone-faced at their laptops and their (laughs) iPhones? I mean, roughly how many weeks I'm imagining, maybe even days did it take for you to, you know, become as cynical as they were?
1: Um, well, that's part of that's interesting because that's I think some, part of the arc of the book is like yes. if you go from me being this naive kid who stands up is just excited to be on the bus and stands up and cheers, to like flash forward I think to uh, ahead of 2016 when we're when we're calling it Hillary's death march to victory and we're just like in <laughs> agony hearing the same speech over and over and like complaining about the food and it was like it was like my evolution was complete.
0: When you got to the New York Times in the summer of 2013, Jill Abramson, then the executive editor, assigned you to cover Hillary full time, uh, which was kind of an unorthodox decision because it was, you know, two and a half years out from the presidential election of 2016. Uh, what did you think of that decision then um, to do that? Was it something you wrestled with and maybe weren't sure about or was it something you thought was a good opportunity? And, um, and do you think it was the right choice?
1: Um, well I'd come to the Times in twenty eleven as a media reporter, so I'd covered the phone hacking scandal. Well, you 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 mostly covered the phone hacking scandal in the UK. (laughs) But I had picked up on your reporting and covered a lot of the Rupert Murdoch uh drama in the UK and I'd covered all of these big media stories and but I really missed covering politics. So when Jill Abramson asked me to cover Hillary full time in July twenty thirteen, I mean I was immediately just you know, overwhelmed with gratitude. I had like scrapped to get my foot in the door in journalism and, you know, 15 years, less than that, 12 years later, I was going to be covering potentially the first woman president for the New York Times. So I immediately was just like completely gracious, grateful and excited. Of course, then I said, when would I start thinking she would say, no, oh, you know, after the midterms. And she said immediately <laughs> in her, in her Jill way. You know? Yes. So, um, So, you know, look, I was extremely grateful. I was and am extremely grateful for the opportunities Jill gave me. I think I was very um, blindsided by how much kind of tension I would be stepping into by by getting that beat um, so early and for the times. um, Certainly people were already writing about Hillary and her presidential ambitions, but um, but it sort of immediately cast this. Um, you know, cast me as the latest pawn in this decades-long drama, which you know uh, better than anyone between the New York Times and and Hillary Clinton's world. Um, and they were very upset with the decision. They really wanted her to kind of float under the radar, um, you know, above scrutiny.
0: Right. Of course, they they I'm sure they hated the the, the decision, right, and thought it was okay. It's another, it's another example of the Times coming after us.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: What do you? What did you think then? What was your first impression in in the summer twenty thirteen? Getting to know her team and their reaction compared to how they reacted to you in two thousand and
1: eight. Well, the interesting thing is, I was like, I was pretty. I was the kid reporter in two thousand eight. I was also working for the Wall Street Journal. Um, this was before Murdoch bought it, or like right. No, it was right after, but he hadn't, you know, enacted any changes, so it was still very focused on. Um, policy and it was um, in the middle of a financial crisis so Hillary wanted to talk to me and her team you know kind of liked me and I liked them and it was uh, it wasn't this tense relationship and what's interesting is that I used to look at Pat Healy who covered Hillary in 2008 and think be so envious he works for the times and they just put him on a pedestal <laughs> I was like very quickly realized that had not been the case at all um so i was you know i called my sources and told them isn't this great i'm back on the beat and it was just like silence on the phone i could just tell something was very different something had changed and it was i think this adversarial relationship uh, between the clinton camp and the times that i was stepping stepping into. I wasn't like the cub reporter who just wanted to talk to her about, um, subprime lending.
0: And how did you overcome that?
1: Um, I mean, look, I don't think I did. And and I, and I, in the book, I, I fault myself for letting the relationship get very toxic, but I really didn't. I mean, a lot of these, this animosity carried over. Um, that said, Hillary brought in a lot of new people to the campaign. Mm-hmm. And when you're in the heat of a campaign, there are things, there are so many stories and you have to just keep churning it out. And so uh, but but in that in that couple year build up to her campaign, it was a lot of investigative. It was a lot of enterprise. It wasn't stories that they necessarily wanted versus during the campaign. I would cover her speech rollout or her policy you know, announcements.
0: One of the parts of the book that's getting a lot of mileage in all the public discussion is your mention of all of your conflicts with the guys, Mm -hmm. as you call them on Hillary's team, who sound like they spent a lot of time trying to get into your head. Uh, Was part of your intention in writing about them to try to highlight for non-journalists in your book the kind of interactions that press aides have with political media?
1: I hadn't thought about it that way because I think Hillary sort of had a very specific cadre of protectors who had been with her for a very long time. Um, I didn't, you know, I certainly had my, my fights with the Obama's people who served in the same role, but it was kind of less psychological. Um, And so I think part of, well, first of all, I just wanted this book to be extremely honest about what it was like to cover the first, the would-be first woman president. And I think part of that is there was a lot of history making in that in that campaign a lot of people were very inspired about the idea of electing a first woman president but at the end of the day there was also a lot of the same old politics and that is having you know this this group of guys who would um you know push back and try to get in your head and try to manipulate coverage and sometimes in in sexist ways so people have said isn't it ironic that the first woman would have this you know, these aides who treat, who act like that. And I think not so much. I mean, it's not like just because a woman has a chance for the presidency. It's all Kumbaya and everybody's, you know, great. It's it's still some of the reporting while female that would happen in covering any presidential campaign.
0: Yeah, the bare knuckle politics are not going to be put on the shelf. Right. Just exactly. because the candidate is female um, on your book, whose idea was it? Was it your idea? Was it somebody else's idea?
1: Oh, about the guys?
0: Yeah, putting that, putting them in the book. I'm just, I'm fascinated with that part of the book.
1: Well, it's interesting because journalists, I think, haven't understood the idea of giving them these monikers, um, giving them pseudonyms, and it wasn't a journalistic decision. It was really more of a literary one. I get kind of name fatigue trying to remember operatives who all perform the same role and they all have very similar physical characteristics, you know, clean cut, you can picture the Washington guy, same sort of background. So for a reader to keep like eight of these people separate to me was just gonna be name fatigue. So I knew that in writing the story, you know, less for the Beltway and more for like my mom's book club in Texas, you know, what? and, and, and then the other thing is just that in my mind and in my storytelling, they became this like tragic comic Greek chorus they were sort of a multi-headed monster to me and I didn't really see them as individuals. It didn't really matter if it was this guy or that one. They were protecting Hillary. They were trying to get in my head and control coverage. And so I decided to give them these, these monikers. But yeah, from the beginning, even from the proposal stage, it was it was my idea.
0: You know, Amy, I think yeah. you're, the way you describe the guys and giving them different names for me works, Um, and I want to quote uh, you here from your book, uh, Chasing Hillary, uh, and then ask you a question about it. You write, I stopped thinking of the guys as individuals. There would be departures and firings and new hires in the Clinton press shop, but they were all the same to me, a tragic comic Greek chorus hell-bent on protecting Hillary and destroying me. You've got a target on your back, the guys always told me, like the drumbeat of a failure foretold. They, they called the times political team a steel cage match they'd feign concern quote I just don't want you to I just don't want to see you become the Jeff girth of your generation close quote whatever that meant so I co-wrote a book about Hillary that was published in 2007 for little brown called her way with Jeff girth he's one of my closest friends uh, when they said that you said whatever that meant it's clear when you wrote this you didn't know what it meant but what do you think they were trying to say
1: well right and I've I've, um, you know, people have asked, I think people are very surprised that there's tension between the Clinton camp and the New York times. I think kind of an outside observer thinks what the liberal New York times. Uh, and right. so, um, yeah. So I had I was writing a story that they didn't want written uh, in that, as you mentioned, that pre-campaign period. And and they kind of feigned one of her guys feigned concern and said, I just don't want to see you become the Jeff Girth of your generation. So I like Google Jeff Girth and realize he's the investigative reporter with who was with The Times when he broke the Whitewater story. Um, and I was uh, I was 12. I was preparing for my bat mitzvah, you know. Um, <laughs> but I felt like that. um, that comment just really spoke to how many decades of scar tissue and grievances I was stepping into. I mean, here was, you know, a dispute they had with a reporter years ago. Um, suddenly, you know, they're, they're transferring that onto me. And I really liked your book. I thought it was great.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I mean, yeah, it was it was 24 years ago, right, or 23 years earlier that Jeff Gerth did the Whitewater story. And, and obviously, to say that, I and mean, Jeff's a two time Pulitzer Prize right. winner, you know, he's one of he's one of the finest journalists of, of the last 40 years. Um, so it just it just shows, as you said, the scar tissue and the animus that you had to deal with.
1: But um, that's what's interesting is that, you know, that story was a legitimate story about a land deal that Got swept up in an ecosystem you know that long predated twitter and twenty four hour cable news and all of these things. But I think that was the first kind of hint that even a story that you know is tough but fair um, can take on this immense life of its own when it comes to the Clintons.
0: Did you expect at the proposal stage to write something that was so deeply personal and also so self-critical?
1: So, Definitely, personally, yes. Um, I always envisioned this book. You know, I've read all the great campaign books, uh, Boys on the Bus, uh, Richard Ben Kramer, all of those. And they're often great men getting inside the campaigns of other great men. And we had this confluence of a woman with a real shot at the presidency, a very female, almost all-female press corps, which was a change. And so I thought... I really wanted to write a very kind of female personal book about that. And my, the model in my head was Julie and Julia. remember about Julia Childs and, and, uh, and how this looming figure took over my twenties and thirties. Um, so I knew that had to be everything from my marriage to my, uh, fertility, um, all of it. So I think, you know, this is, I was trying something new and I knew it had to be very, very personal.
0: And did you expect when you started out Amy or when you signed the book contract that it was going to be um also as not not just tough on yourself but also tough on your colleagues because the book is very tough on the press corps including people at the New York Times?
1: Um I don't think I'm that tough on my colleagues. I do think I'm tough on myself and the media writ large and I don't think I don't think I knew it was going to be such a treatise on the media when I you know, initially set out to write this. But that being said, if you go back to all of those books, um, What It Takes, Boys on the Bus, um, any of the really readable campaign books are also very much about the media, very much, um, you know, What It Takes is an indictment of pack journalism, um, a different type of journalism than, of course. Um, Boys on the Bus, very much about Journalism and so uh, even even fear and loathing on the campaign trail, you know the reporting and the press play a Big part in all of those books. So I think in retrospect it made sense I also think that we ended up in this election in which I think Donald Trump could not get elected in a different media climate So I don't think you could write a book about 2016 without it being pretty heavily focused on on media
0: I want to quote here from an NPR interview you did about chasing Hillary. This is what you said. I know that Hillary Clinton supporters are vehement about the media's mishandling of her private emails, but to me, what kept me up at night was the idea that we in the media had done exactly what the Russians had wanted us to do, which was cover these stolen emails that were released by WikiLeaks. And I'm conflicted because they were out there. You know, we confirmed that they were accurate and contextualized them. But I know that it hasn't sat well with me that the media kind of did exactly what Russian intelligence wanted us to do. Now, Amy, I was so struck to hear you say that because it's just so honest about what the press did in 2016 and your feelings about it. It's not something you see a lot of journalists doing. It's a conversation that a lot of political reporters, just as an outsider, don't seem to want to be having. So how hard was that? Or I guess how easy was that? And again, how important was it to take on those kinds of issues in this book?
1: Um, Yeah, I I, look, I think a memoir has to be pretty brutally honest for it to work. I read a lot. I don't know if you've read the Mary Carr's memoirs, but she has a great book about writing memoirs that says, um, what would you write if you weren't afraid? And so I had that quote in my head the whole time I wrote and look if I wrote a memoir about 2016 and said the media was perfect and we made no mistakes and here's all the mistakes that Hillary and her campaign team ma- made I just think that would ring really false um, it also would just be like false as part of the historic record you know um so I knew I had to be pretty honest about uh my own mistakes as well and and the Russia chapter um yeah, I mean, I, I describe in the book. The chapter is called "How I Became an Unwitting Agent of Russian Intelligence," yes. and a great,
0: just, ti- a great title, by the way. I love that <laughs> title so much.
1: <laughs> Thank you. And I don't know, like, if I could, uh, you know, I, I mean, if I can curse on your show, but I mean, yes, the, the, uh, uh, the the um, you know the the quote and that chapter is you could tell the beginning of the end when the protagonist realizes that her choices mean something and then if they don't work out she is well and truly fucked so um you know <laughs> and I think that was the kind of moment that the like if I'm making myself the protagonist in this and I'm sure the Clinton people would argue I'm, I'm not um you know that you really realize that you're Actions mean something, and that was the you know that was a story I read by my colleagues in D.C. Uh, that won a Pulitzer. That was a great story about how the Russians had pulled off the perfect hack to interfere in our democracy. And the part of the story said that you know part of the Russian plan was to turn political journalists, including those at The Times, into unwitting agents of Russian intelligence. So, um, and that really sat with me. And I think there's been some misinterpretation. That I'm saying we shouldn't have covered those emails. You know, I'm not. Yes, saying, I've seen.
0: I've seen some of that. I have seen some of that kind of weird misinterpretation and pushback for that. Yeah, and that's, not, and that's people, not what you. That's not what you're exactly. at all. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I think people haven't read the. I mean, I don't blame. I mean, if people haven't read the book. It's obvious you're going to jump on the tweets or whatever the excerpts are. But I've never argued that. I just argued that it didn't sit well. That we know that these hacks are going to happen again, and you know, and I'm. I'm very pleased to see the debate that has happened around around uh, around this issue since the book came out. I mean, that's all I really wanted is kind of to really think about. I think it's the unwitting part that bothers me, you know, it was like, Going in, we know these these hacks are gonna happen, and so let's be witting. You know, if we're gonna be agents, if we're gonna, because as as my colleagues and others have pointed out, every source has a motivation. So let's just be witting as we go into it. You know, what do, what do readers really need to know? What can we, how transparent can we be about how we obtain this information and what the source's motivations are? There's just so much distrust of the media that I think that layer of transparency is important. But certainly I don't think, you know, if if information that is very important to voters, for instance, the content of Hillary's Wall Street speeches lands in your lap, you're not going to ignore that. Um, but yeah, I kind of leave it hanging in the book. they just that it bothered me and not that I, I don't know a solution.
0: Right. You do. Um, now, you're on maternity leave now from The Times with your new baby, Cormac, right? Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Thank and you. have you been back to the newsroom uh, at all since the book's been published?
1: I haven't. I haven't, no. A ton of my Times friends came to my book party a couple weeks ago, but I haven't been back to the office, no.
0: I'm just curious what your Times colleagues reaction has been to the book in general, but then more specifically some of the some of the press criticism. Have they take have they taken it personally? Has anybody taken it personally? Either at the Times or elsewhere?
1: Well, the interesting thing, I haven't heard any complaints. All of my colleagues and editors have been amazing and supportive. And I probably had 40 times people at my book party from Carolyn Ryan, the politics editor. I mean, well, the former politics editor and now masthead editor. And Pat Healy is covering, who's editing politics coverage now. And um, my buddy Michael Barbaro. So it was like great. I mean, everybody's been so great and supportive. But then I, you know, read things and. BuzzFeed and elsewhere that people um, have, a, have a problem with some of the parts of the book. So I can't really speak to that because I haven't heard it directly.
0: Yeah, I've seen that too in BuzzFeed, and I wanted to ask you about that. So what do you think motivates that? Is it is it just more evidence that their reporters are as thin skinned as everybody always says,
1: <laughs> I think they are. I mean, I heard from NBC news people who were had problems with katie Turr's memoir i mean i think I think reporters are very uncomfortable being written about certainly um so that may have something to do with it, but also, like as you point out, for an industry that thrives on investigation, we're not really good at turning that microscope on ourselves and Um, Being self-reflective and I think I mean, I'm just guessing here, but there's it's not It's not a criticism of the times. I think if anything, it's like it looks good when we kind of contemplate Coverage and think about what we could do differently. I mean, I you know, my north star in the book and in 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 life was David Carr, and I just kept thinking, "Am I writing anything tougher than David Carr would have written in one of his media columns?" And I really, I really don't think so. Um, but but that can be uncomfortable. I, I think a spe- and I and I understand that because. The press is really under assault, you know, colleagues who are covering Trump are under constant assault and accusations of fake news and all of that. So I completely understand the instinct to, um, you know, to just to just protect, to kind of huddle and protect the, um, you know, our coverage.
0: What has been the best reaction you've had from a reader? Or even readers um, to your book. What's been sort of the nicest compliment where you where you thought, "Wow, okay, this person really got what I was trying to do here."
1: Um, I love it. I love it when people appreciate the humor because that's something that I don't think comes out. In the kind of gossipy snippets that have been circulating, people it has not. It
0: is not, and it's a very <laughs> funny book. I want everybody to to just read it just for that. There's a ton of humor in it. You're, oh, you're hilarious. Yeah. Thank
1: you. Well, that's that was important to me. So I've had um, you know people telling me that they were cracking up. A lot of people have sent me pictures of themselves like reading it on the beach over drinks. I love that. People in airports <laughs> have sent me pictures of it. Um, like with James, you know, coupled with Comey's book. And that's awesome. Um, So no, it's been really great. I had a very surprising compliment last night from Jesse Waters on Fox News. He was like, I'm reading this book about Hillary Clinton by a New York Times reporter. And the whole panel thinks he's like joking. He's like, no, this is my favorite book that I've ever read. (laughs) It was was wild. It was wild. The whole panel is like, you're kidding. He's like, no, I'm not kidding.
0: Covering Hillary, you you know, you talked about the home stretch, the death march, and you and you discussed since the book. But I want to ask you for our listeners: How did you just stay sane in that home stretch?
1: God, it was hard. I mean, you know, you become such good friends with the people on the bus, my trail right. friends, that I think we had a lot of, you know, we got each other through it. Whether it was like sneaking in a workout or, uh, you know, finding some joy. I, I write in that death march period. that She had a rally it was like she would always do this she would pick really big venues and then she would have the rally in like the foyer of the venue cuz she couldn't fill the giant venue um so anyway we were at like Steelers or the Steelers the stadium and uh in Pittsburgh and she was having a rally like in the kind of front hallway and uh and we were in the stadium and it was empty completely empty And it was like the most beautiful fall day. And we're running around in this field, looking at all of these. I mean, it was just like an incredible experience. You're like, wow, I'm where the Steelers play. And it's completely empty. And I'm running around. It's a beautiful day. We would find like snippets of joy uh, in the the drudgery. Um, The funny thing is after the book came out, I heard from a lot of My campaign trail friends were like, I'm so nostalgic. I I missed 2016. I'm like, you missed that campaign. That was like the worst. (laughs) That was our country's like worst moment. They're like, I know, but we had so much fun when we were in Vegas or when we were like. So there's a tendency to just remember those those times.
0: Now, I want to talk to you about access because that's an important issue whenever you're covering politics or covering anything really is how much access or how little access are you going to get you got almost no access to Hillary yeah i mean just it's remarkable and, and by the way neither did i when we did her way mm. we got zero we got zero you at least i ran into her right in a in a service elevator i think right? <laughs> it's like you know it's like exactly. i mean think about that like you know you're, you're you're covering her in two presidential campaigns and you barely speak to her so i okay. want to talk to you about just that cal- Calculation by Hillary. I mean, it really speaks to the fact that she felt not only that she was going to be the presumptive nominee in 2016, but that she was going to win, and that she didn't really need the press, right? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, I say her media strategy amounted to ignoring us. Um, Right. I think you and you know this, and Jeff knows this better than anyone. But like Hillary has built up so much scar tissue from. Battles with the press, dating back to the first campaign in ninety two that I just think she came into twenty sixteen like you said, very much assuming the front runner position and thinking you know they're not going to give me a fair shot what's the point? Um, I think she looked at us and thought we were kind of impossibly young and uninterested in policy and driven by clicks and Twitter and there was just Kind of no point um, you know she would go on the Ellen DeGeneres show several times and not give us interviews um, which was disappointing because we had you know I tallied 47 interview requests to discuss national security her economic policy which I was very interested in and covered extensively uh, her work for the children's defense fund you know I wrote a story about her going undercover in alabama uh uh, to investigate segregation academies in the 19 early 1970s um really kind of great hillary as an activist chapter of her life that had not been out there and it was extremely difficult reporting to find something you know as you know new about hillary clinton to say so i was digging through archives in alabama and talking to people um and the campaign tried to kill that story i mean not only did they Not only did they not grant me any interviews, but they were worried. They said, you're going to make her sound sneaky. There's something you're not telling us. You know, they tried to kill it. And then when it ran, after it ran, this was the period when she was really trying to win black voters in the South, and they used it in ads. And Bill Clinton talked about it constantly. Um, he talked about it at the convention. I don't know if you remember, it was like a major part of his convention speech was like Hillary going undercover. And, uh, and it's like, really? Even as you're sponging off my reporting, you're trying to you know, stop every story and control everything, I think, to, really to her detriment.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, how much did that strategy you think hurt her uh, in the end?
1: I think it, I mean, look, I think it would have hurt her against any candidate, but she was running against Donald Trump, who knew completely how to, you know, captivate the media's attention and just flood the zone. Um, And so I think it particularly hurt her against Trump. You know, she's complained that he got so much free airtime. But I know that a lot of these cable shows would have been happy to have Hillary Clinton call in. You know, they would have, they asked and she always said no. So um, I definitely think... I think they just sort of missed how to engage. I mean, they really missed how to engage in a productive way. I think about how charming Hillary is to donors um, and how much time and effort she spent, um, you know, sh- like schmoozing with donors and charming donors. And if she had spent even like 10% of that time, you know, talking to the 10 or 15 reporters who covered her, we would have been able to, I think, see that side. Um,
0: Did you ever see her exhibit that charm um, and schmooze with voters?
1: Yeah, absolutely, I did. And I think this is another problem with her being stuck in the 90s. They were very they were very attached to doing rallies. And I think there were people in her campaign, newer advisors who said that she should, instead of doing rallies, do some small town halls, do a lot of visits to like the girls and boys club and the you know and the girl scouts and uh you know elementary schools she's great in those settings and coffee shops um she's great in those settings and and they would they could go viral as much of a, as a rally but um they were sort of like huma and some of the older aides were very stuck in doing these big rallies so i did see that charm come out um in kind of less, I mean, spontane- I have a chapter called Spontaneity is Embargoed Until Four. So it was <laughs> spontaneity is all relative in the Clinton world. But in these more spontaneous stopping by a coffee shop kind of settings, you could see that.
0: Amy, I want you to respond to just sort of the general criticism that's out there, not just about the New York Times, but all of the mainstream media. That everybody wanted Hillary to win. This was a coronation campaign, and its coverage. Setting aside the emails for a second, because obviously that's a whole separate issue that we've already talked about. But I mean, you know, how, how obviously you don't think that's fair. But but tell me what your reaction to it was, and and what cuts against that, and what and how you covered Hillary, and how your colleagues covered Hillary.
1: It's interesting because half the world seems to think it was a coronation and the Times and everyone else wanted to get her elected. And half my Twitter feed thinks that the New York Times, you know, was out to destroy her and the media right. was too hard on her. And, you know, we kind of wanted Donald Trump because he drives clicks and revenue. And so I, I don't know. I feel like that that's pretty split in partisan lines. Um, and and,
0: that, and that's, by the way, the Bill Clinton Uh, controversy now right that he's embraced is that exactly yeah that the times you know propped up Donald Trump you know purely for its stock price and for business purposes
1: right which I saw his spokesman disputed on Twitter but his in fairness his spokesman who I I like and respect and I think he's a good guy he's a good guy um, but he but he wasn't there when Bill Clinton was was you know talking to people in Chappaqua about this conspiracy
0: it has the Um, it has the ring of truth knowing Bill Clinton as well as I do when I read those comments it definitely has the ring of truth he's always looking it's interesting I mean they've they have been the subject of so many wild conspiracy theories but Bill Clinton has also hatched a few of his own over the years oh yeah exactly yeah yeah, it rang true for sure when I when I read those comments (laughs) okay well that's good
1: to know because it
0: is (laughs) yeah yeah but no but Amy you were I I interrupted you you were yeah on this criticism I mean you know it's interesting that there is this split down the middle Mm -hmm. It's just the way the country is split, right, that people see it in different ways. But but as you were covering it, you were getting bombarded with that criticism in real time, too, right? I mean, you were hearing it through Twitter and through social media channels all the time that you were being too soft, you were being too hard. I mean, I guess my question is, how do you sort of keep your head down and just keep doing your job and not let that impact you as you're, as you're in the moment?
1: Yeah, it was hard, and I think that's something that— um people have been surprised by uh, especially liberals who've read the book the kind of vitriol from the bernie supporters about the times coverage and the very kind of sexist totally x-rated language that you know i would get and other female reporters would get for covering hillary and they and they thought that we were ignoring bernie or we were you know annoying hillary um and so that came that was actually more intense than during the general election hearing from Trump supporters.
0: Now, Amy, when I was at the New York Times back in 2005, um, the editor then, Bill Keller, asked me and a few of my colleagues to go back and write um uh, sort of an autopsy of the whole Judy Miller experience with Judy going to jail and trying to protect a source named Scooter Libby, uh, who didn't necessarily want to be protected. And we, you know, we did a really tough story. And of course, there was the Jason Blair story that David Barstow and other people did as well. Do you think the Times should do a similar sort of aut- autopsy of its coverage of the 2016 election?
1: Um, That's a really good question. And I think I don't think it ever hurts to do an autopsy of coverage, you know. I I and but I do think some people pushing for that kind of autopsy come from a place of expecting the Times to have helped Hillary get elected, you know. I think look, our job yes. our yes. job was not to get Hillary Clinton elected. Our job was to best inform voters about their choices. And so, could we I think if if there is an autopsy, it's could we have done a better job of that? Um could the coverage have you know, included different types of stories or, and I actually think we did every type of story. We covered every policy. Those stories didn't necessarily break through, but we did do them. But so I think it's a matter of um, the breadth, the variety and veracity of, of coverage versus, you know, you guys didn't do enough to get Hillary elected.
0: Right. And I have a couple more very quick political questions I want to ask you before I let you go. Besides Hillary, who is most responsible for Hillary's defeat?
1: Oh, good question. I always feel like a, a, my version of hell is you're at a dinner party and you're between one person <laughs> arguing that it's James Comey and the other arguing that she should have gone to Wisconsin. You know, it's like,
0: <laughs> Yes, and I've, I've, I think I've been at that dinner been party. have probably been at that I've dinner party. That, it's really, there's yes, probably someone yes, across the table that. who's
1: saying the, it was the Russians, you know. So, yes, uh, But yes. no, I mean, let's see. Aside from Hillary, who is most responsible, I mean, she would say Comey and the Russians... You know, I would. Yeah. I mean, and I know that people would disagree with me, but I would say Donald Trump. I mean, I had a. I have a quote from Matthew Dowd, uh, independent strategist, who said really early on, before when Hillary's campaign still wanted to run against Trump because they thought he would be, you know, the easiest Republican to defeat, uh, and he said she's assembled a large tanker ship and she's about to get confronted by Somali pirates. You know, um, and that was sort of what happened it's a brilliant brilliant
0: quote it is what happened yeah it's so it's on the money right so pressing. so I know
1: that people think that he you know just kind of stumbled into this but you have to give him I'm gonna get killed but like you know you have to give the Somali pirates some credit am I gonna get killed for saying that (laughs) Uh, you might I know I know um and then the other thing I would say is that uh, the Financial Times reviewed my book, gave my book a really good review, but they said it it reads like a funeral for how politics used to be done. And to the kind of giant tanker ship quote, I would, I think I agree with that. You know, this was like Hillary had assembled this corporate giant corporate campaign, and um, and I wonder if that's the last of the corporate campaigns. You know, the kind of very data driven. Um, kind of all math and not much magic, um, poll-tested campaign.
0: Very interesting. Did you have any sense at any time, Amy, that there was a shot she was going to lose? There was a chance she was going to lose?
1: I kept telling my editors that it didn't feel like a winning campaign. That said, I thought she was going to win. Yeah, I, you know, I'd covered Obama's campaign in 2008, and that felt like a winning campaign. The swell of crowds, the excitement. And Hillary's didn't quite feel like that to me. But that said, I did believe in the data and I did believe in the conventional wisdom. And I, you know, I thought she was going to win. I had my story all ready to go. So I can't do some Monday morning quarterbacking and say, oh, yeah, I thought she was going to lose. But I had this nagging sensation ever since her very first, you know, big rally when she had a real failure to articulate why she wanted to be president. And then her message went through all of these you know different versions and they killed the everyday americans because that wasn't working and then they tested 84 different replacements and you know i just had the sensation that this wasn't a winning campaign but i also relied on a lot of the data and conventional wisdom that everyone else did
0: and finally did you get any reaction from either hillary bill clinton or any of those that flying west wing that you referred to the people that have been with her since the 90s
1: well as you know from writing a book uh, about her there I don't think there's been <laughs> a unauthorized book about Hillary in which they have not tried to squash or kill or discredit you know so I was anticipating oh
0: yeah they they they, they went out of their way to try to discredit
1: but her what's away, interesting sure. about her way is I had heard all of this before I read it you know like this kind of oh this book and then I was like but this is a really fair You know, interesting investigative portrait.
0: We thought we thought so too. And unlike Bernstein's book, um, which I know you you really admire, and I do too. But unlike that book, you know, we actually looked at her Senate record very carefully. Um, You know, Carl ignored that, and and actually there was a lot of good things she did in the Senate that we gave her credit for.
1: No, absolutely. And you also did something that I I know that they hate that's in that's in some of those other books is you didn't like put her on the couch. You know, it was very rooted and in reporting um and not a lot of like psychoanalyzing um yeah but uh but yeah so so i knew that there would be pushback i wasn't sure how where it would come from but like before the book even came out before i think they'd even read certainly before they'd read it one of her spokesmen was releasing statements saying that you know i had i held the candidate to a high standard with a low standard of reporting and so they were attacking my reporting Even before it came out and then I think most of the pushback had come from Chelsea over a couple details in the book um, That she disputed but you know rather than discussing those there was a lot of airing it on Twitter um, In a in a really damaging way, so I hadn't anticipated that necessarily, but I did anticipate that there would be um, blowback and, and an attempt to discredit it which is a shame because as you said Um, There's been such a hankering for the media to show some self-reflection about mistakes we made and I was Doing that at the risk of upsetting my employer at the risk of upsetting my colleagues at the risk of making myself look like Less than you know and then and then you do that and it the instinct is still like well Let's not even pay attention to that You know like that reporter from the New York Times hates Hillary and let's not even pay attention to that So it's frustrating but not surprising
0: well, congratulations on the book. Congratulations be, being a New York Times bestseller. That's something that no one can ever take away from you, Amy. And it's and it's, it's, it's a it's a great thing.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, a friend of mine said, you can put that in your obituary. I was like, oh, well, I'm done. I <laughs> just put that
0: yes, That's New York Times. Yes, it's time to yep. retire. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that was exciting. Thank you.
0: Well, best of luck when you return. Enjoy your maternity you so leave much. and your son, Cormac. And thank you so much for being a guest here on the Sunday Lonery Podcast, Amy. I hope to meet you someday. This has been the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My guest has been Amy Chozik. She is a writer at large for the New York Times. Last seven years, she's covered politics, business, and the media. Uh, Her new book, which I highly recommend, is called Chasing Hillary. It is a New York Times bestseller. If you like what you just heard, we urge you to go to Apple iTunes and give us a review. The Sunday Long Read podcast is a first cousin of the Sunday Long Read newsletter, which is a weekly compilation of the best long form journalism. You can subscribe to the Sunday Long Read at www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe, and it'll drop in your inbox every Sunday morning at eight o'clock Eastern time. My name is Don Van Natta, our producer today, Peter Bailey-Wells did an outstanding job as always. Also want to give a shout out to Jacob Feldman, my co-pilot and friend at the SLR. And we have a great group of guests lined up for you here that'll be coming soon. So we ask you to stay tuned for the next great SLR podcast. Thanks for listening. See you soon.